0: I'm Calico Field.
1: I'm Mike Lucibella.
0: And we are reporting from the APS March meeting in Boston, Massachusetts.
1: It's been wicked awesome.
0: It has been wicked awesome. Uh, Yeah, we're wrapping up. It's Friday. Everybody's really tired and squeezing in one last session. But uh, Mike and I have seen, seen some pretty awesome stuff.
1: Yeah, it's been really cool. I've seen all kinds of stuff on all different kinds of physics. And it's just amazing how much different kind of physics we can squeeze into one meeting over just four days.
0: It's always such an awesome meeting because people are really coming to just talk about the ideas that they've had, uh, the, the ways that they're approaching the same kind of physics and swapping ideas about, oh, well, how did you do this and how did I do this? And and that's what meetings are meant for. It's an exchange of ideas. It's meant to get ideas flowing. Uh, so it's always a very energetic environment.
1: One thing I really like about this meeting is it's a cool kind of mix between the, the theoretical and the really practical I mean, and it's a lot of fun stuff. You know, you've, we've heard about um, the physics of ponytails and curly hair, which you heard about in an earlier podcast. And you also have things about, you know, future of nuclear energy and other kinds of things like that.
0: So there are a lot of things that Mike and I don't understand at all. But we managed to pull out uh, some of the things that we do understand and some of the fun stuff and uh, bring it to you. Yeah,
1: and one thing I definitely understand are snakes. And, Cal, I know you went to a session all about the physics of snakes, and I'm dying to hear what, uh, what you heard about.
0: Are you dying to hear? All right, so let's talk about some snakes. Snakes have no limbs, obviously, but they can climb up vertical surfaces. Snakes can climb trees, like slither up. They can get around extremely well in the environments that they're adapted to. So scientists are interested in understanding how they do that. Uh, and they know, scientists know, that friction plays a part in that. So physicists are really interested in how snakes do this. I mean, it's, it's just such a peculiar a peculiar way to get around um, There's also scientists at this meeting from the Georgia Institute of Technology looking at how snakes use their scales to help them move, to help them push along. And they've shown that snakes actually can kind of dig their scales into the ground and kind of use them like, not little legs, but they stick out their scales just to give them some friction, to kind of push them along. What they've also found out is that this is a conscious mechanism, and that's really interesting, that the snake has conscious control over something as subtle as the angle at which its scales are poking out on the bottom. And they, they got really creative with figuring out how this is a conscious decision. So you, you put a snake on a table that has very low friction to the point that the snake can't really move. It can sit there and wiggle and wiggle and wiggle and it can't go anywhere. And you slowly tilt the table up. So it's getting closer and closer to vertical. And eventually the snake just slides right off. And the snakes were fine. They didn't hurt them. Just a little bit of a slip down into a (laughs) soft surface, I'm sure. But then what they did was they actually knocked the snake out. Uh, They put it to sleep and they did the experiment again. They laid them out on this very low friction table and tilted it up. And the the snakes that were sleeping slid off the table much sooner than the ones that were awake. So even on a table where the snake can't move forward, they know that it knows how to dig its scales into the table to kind of try to hold on for a little bit longer. And the other thing that they found is that the snake uh, has something called the angle of attack. So that's the angle between the scale and the table. So if if the scales are flat up against the snake's body, then the angle is basically zero. And then it can dig those scales into the table and the angle starts to increase. If that angle gets too big, then it no longer helps the snake hold on. And they found that there is this ideal window. But the snake can adjust it depending on the surface that it's on. If it's on a very slippery surface, it might want a larger angle of attack. Uh, If it's on a surface that isn't as hard to grip, it might be smaller. And this is all just fascinating, understanding, uh, again, this this very unique and complicated motion of how snakes move and the way they've adapted evolutionarily to get around uh, without limbs. And now we're finding out that it's not just this simple wiggling motion. There's a lot that goes into it, and there are a lot of things that the snake is controlling. The other great thing from this is they put the little snake in like a little snake- straight jacket to also study you know the limitations of its motion which was adorable i do not usually think snakes are adorable but this made me have so much empathy for them uh in their little jackets they don't like jackets they don't it's not like dogs you can't put them in a jacket they can't get around um so we're learning all kinds of things about snakes
1: why would they want to mimic uh, the way a snake moves
0: Again, these snakes are extremely well adapted to their environment. Um, Sand is a great example. Uh, I think I've even done some podcasts about this. Moving on sand is extremely difficult for people uh, or things with wheels or legs. Um, The sand can slide out from under you. Uh, You can sink down into the sand. But there are snakes that live in sandy environments that get around very well. Um, And when you think about sand, you could also think about other surfaces that have a lot of rubble or are very uneven. Um, So there are actually people looking into building robots that take into account um, the advantages of how snakes move, robots that could go over, say, disaster areas and get into uh, bombed-out buildings or uh, places where an avalanche had taken place, something like that. So there are absolutely applications for this kind of motion. Cool. All right, so that's what I learned about snakes. Mike, you learned about something much more serious. You went to a session uh, about bomb detection.
1: Right, exactly. I went to this one session from by Eugene Lavely from BAE Systems. He's been looking at a way to develop uh, technology to detect unexploded um, bombs, unexploded mortars and ordinances and that kind of thing, there's lots of parts of the world where there are still unexploded uh, mortars from, you know, wars that have passed and, and things like that and landmines and things. And what's really difficult is the way you kind of traditionally look for these um, unexploded ordinances is with a metal detector because they are usually made out of metal. But the problem there is there's a lot of things that are made of metal um, and it you can't dig up everything or well, if you do, it's extremely expensive. Um, so there needs to be a way to try to figure out what you're looking at when your metal detector goes off. And he came up with this, this system and it's very clever because it uses a very basic principle of physics. Um, one of inductance, it's something that you learn in a, uh, basically, a, uh, electricity and magnetism 101. And it's able to use that fundamental principle and turn it into something very, very useful. You know, the way a metal detector works is there's uh, a current going around a a wire, uh, a coil of wire, and it creates a magnetic field. If a metal object goes through that magnetic field, um, it creates its own magnetic field, which then induces another current in a smaller coil, which is a detector kind of coil. And that's that's when you hear a beep on your metal detectors at the beach. But all you really know is that there is something metal under there. Well, what he did was um, he took 25 metal detectors, essentially like this, and organized them in a big big square. It kind of looks like a giant lawnmower device. Um, So there's, you know, this square of 5x5 coils with um, sensing coils inside of them. And they're very, very sensitive. And you roll them over a patch of ground that you think there might be some unexploded bomb and it looks for the signatures of, um, it looks for any metal signatures, but it's sensitive enough. It can actually distinguish individual signatures of magnetic fields. You know, every object is going to create a different magnetic field. So what it looks for are, you know, indicators such as, you know, the conductivity of the object, the shape of the object and the size of the object uh, just from the the magnetic field it produces. And using that, it can then, you go back and compare it in a computer system with pre-existing templates, like um, signatures of ordinances, you already know what they look like. So, you know, put a, a mortar and run the system over it and see what signature it has. So when you're out in the field, you can say, well, this signature looks like a mortar. This signature doesn't look like anything we know, so we can probably ignore it. And it goes a long way of being able to tell what what it is you're looking at under your feet, uh, just using those three um, identifiers—the conductivity, the size, and the shape of the object—that goes a long way to being able to tell if you know if there's a, a landmine underneath your feet, or if there's a refrigerator underneath your feet. You know, there's a lot of lot of different ways that you can identify what you're looking at without actually looking at.
0: This is such a great example of how. Uh... You know, it might be simple for people to say, um, well, we have metal detectors, let's look for these metal objects. Like, well, why can't we tell their size or if they're hollow or what they are? And it's the challenge for physicists to gather more information when the traditional ways that we gather information, like looking at something, are not there. And it's so awesome to hear how creative physicists get with gathering information from very little. There was also a press conference of, about this bomb detection system. And the other thing that they brought up is that with extreme weather that's happening in the world, there are actually some of these um, bombs getting washed up uh, from the ocean into areas where they weren't previously. And so there is actually a new need uh, to be able to detect these after they've been buried in layers of mud and sand coming in.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And they're also working on smaller systems, too, um, to be able to deploy it inside of forests because it's very difficult to have a whole bunch of um, coils next to each other. So they're working on compacting the system down, making it more sensitive.
0: I'm Cala Cofield reporting from the APS March meeting. You've been listening to the Physics Buzz podcast. As always, you can find more podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at physicscentral.com. Tune in next week for more Physics Buzz.